Welcome, everyone, to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McCurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. In this, our 100th episode, we'll cover episode four of the CBS All Access series, The Stand, The House of the Dead. 100 episodes, Jay. Hot damn, 100 episodes. Congratulations. Yeah, congratulations to us. That's quite an accomplishment. Yeah. Especially when you consider we've really done like 120 when you count our bonus episodes and little uh, things here and there. But like, yeah, 100 episodes, we deserve a cake or something. Yeah. I mean, I think we deserve a cake more often than just every hundred episodes, but true enough. Well, and thank you to all of our listeners for following along with us for a hundred episodes. This is a, a really exciting milestone for us. Glad to have you all along with us. So to recap this episode, in flashbacks, we learn how Harold and Franny connect with Stu and Glenn. Nick and Tom meet two women, one good and one bad. In the present story, the Boulder Free Zone starts to come together with town halls, a committee, and putting the power back on. The committee chooses three unlikely spies to send to Las Vegas. Harold and Nadine plot an attack on the committee, but are discovered. Dun, dun, dun. I like that two women, one good, one bad. That's a nice touch. Yeah, thank you. Well, who is the good one? <laughs> oh yeah, Mother Abigail. Nick only tried to have sex with one of them. Was it the good one or the bad one? <laughs> that we know of. <laughs> oh. <laughs> All right. Well, Jay, we've been really lucky to have been getting listener feedback on a regular basis since we've gone to the weekly format on the stand. And so we wanted to share some of those. And our first one is from a YouTube viewer, Kaza8240, who found us via YouTube and said, I can't believe I'm just finding this now. Me and my sister are both huge fans and philosophers of Roland's story. It'll be nice to hear other appreciative voices about my favorite thing I have ever read as a whole. Well, glad to have you on board, Kaza8240. A hundred episodes from now, you'll finally hear your name mentioned. Yeah. (laughs) If you're just finding us. (laughs) I'm sure that Kaza8240 will catch up with us a lot more quickly than we arrived at episode 100. Fair enough. We also got an email from Brian Oliver, and he says, Hey guys, I thought I'd drop a line and share how much I've enjoyed your podcast. And then he goes on to say, In short, this 40-year-old has found new enjoyment in a bunch of books I've read 25 to 30 years ago, mostly thanks to you. Thank you, Brian. Yeah, for us, we are a little bit older than that, so there are a bunch of books we read 30 to 35 years ago, (laughs) and again, more recently. Glad to have you aboard, Brian. Sean, do you want to read the the next email, or should I? I I don't feel comfortable talking about the next one. A little bit of nepotism. Okay. This is from an email from Paul McGurr, I think is how it's pronounced. (laughs) And Mr. McGurr says, hey guys, I'm making this an official email and not just my regular conversations with Sean, as it is my first major disagreement with your stand podcasts. You spent some time in your episode three podcast saying that you thought the actors were too young for their characters. I did not think so. 
so I made a list of characters and the age I picture them as compared to the age of the actors portraying them. Then we get a table. Nothing like a retired accountant to put together a table full of numbers. <laughs> That's right. Mr. McGurr says he pictures Larry in his late 20s. The actor is 32. Franny around 21. The actor's 22. Glenn, he pictured in the late 60s. The actor's 57. Stu, mid to late 30s. The actor's 47. And so on. For the most part, it seems like, to Mr. McGurr's point, the show's pretty accurate. They're not too far off on their casting. One standout is Harold. Harold should be in his teens, and Mr. McGurr says 16, and the actor playing Harold is 22. And Nadine probably should be in her 20s, according to Mr. McGurr, but the actor is 34. And of course, we, we know that Whoopi Goldberg is not 108 years old. What? She is way younger than that. <laughs> in fact, she's probably not even old enough to live in Hemingford home. Probably not. Well, thank you, Mr. McCurr, for uh, pointing that out for us. Good response to last week's episode. Yes, thank you. Our final listener feedback for this one just came in today via Twitter. User 680001 says, I wonder if the inevitable fan edits that put the story in chronological order will make this more watchable. At this moment, there's no drama or suspense or terror or humor. I suspect that people who read the book will be mildly entertained. People who haven't read the book will be bored. Well, Twitter user 680001, I think you've pretty much nailed exactly my thoughts on this. I have read the book and I am mildly entertained. And I agree with you that a edit in chronological order would make a little bit more sense to us. And I think that's going to lead right into our first section on potential problems with the show and not to oversell it as we have in the last three episodes, but the flashbacks continue to be a problem in making this a engaging story. We're also introduced not only to sort of flashbacks of before the plague and what's happening in the present day, but even there's flashbacks within the present day, as we saw in that first scene where the committee is both presenting on stage at the town hall and then flashing back to hours earlier, a day earlier to planning for that. And it's just not working. So Jay, I don't know if you want to say much more about this, but let's just say we've checked the box. The flashbacks continue to be a problem. I, I won't say any more, but I will say Topher Grace, if you're listening, please get on that chronological edit so that we can enjoy this in the order that uh, King intended. I did not get that reference. Topher Grace edited uh, the Star Wars movies or something. I forget what he did. It was Topher Grace who did that. Yeah, yeah. Venom himself. Uh-huh. Yes, that, that is his most well-known role. Who <laughs> <laughs> has since been replaced by better Venom. Also known as Tom Hardy. Also, his best-known role. No. <laughs> I'm being sarcastic. This is my sarcastic voice. One other problem that I'm having, and Twitter user 680001 said that not only is there no drama, suspense, terror, humor, but I wanted to add no emotional character, especially to some of the minor characters. In the book, when the committee sends off the spies, those are some pretty emotional moments as each of the committee members takes aside their nominated spy and not only approaches them about what they want them to do, but then when they're actually leaving, 
it gets to be a little bit emotional. Mm -hmm. Especially, in my opinion, Larry with the judge. We said what a great scene that was when Larry approached the judge about it, and we really learned a lot about the judge and how he felt about this and the reasons for it. And then when, when the judge gets into his Range Rover and takes off. I mean, here we had not met the judge yet. The committee's sitting around a table, and Larry says, how about the judge? And he goes and sees her. She seems to be running a library. She meets at the committee, says yes, and then she goes. And you see Larry hug her, and it's supposed to be this emotional moment. And I'm like, she's been on screen for maybe 20 seconds. I don't know who this character is and why she's important and why I should care about her. She was on screen for one other second. Oh. She was in the passenger seat next to Larry when they first arrived in Bolton. Ah, uh, yes, I do remember that there was somebody in the passenger seat, so. And all that happened was Larry looked at a woman in the passenger seat, and she kind of made a face like, uh, and then Larry looked away, and that was it. Yeah, okay, so 25 seconds of screen time before, uh, before this mm-hmm. emotional moment. And it happens again with Dana, who we just meet this episode. Again, she doesn't say much until she's with the committee. But we got to see Dana beat the shit out of a guy. I will give her that. Yes. So we know a little bit more about her, except that you said it. It's Those are sort of the problems that I'm having. I'm still not connecting to the show the way I want to because of some of this stuff. I'll kind of roll that into what I think is working for the show. And despite the fact that you're having trouble connecting to the minor characters, I think I'm finally connecting with the major characters. Hmm. I'm starting to feel all the feels. I don't know if you agree with that in general, but throughout this episode, this is the first episode so far where I enjoyed myself more than I didn't. And I actually, I, I laughed a bunch of times. I got a little choked up once and I felt like these characters actually are starting to matter to me. I cannot clearly state whether or not that is simply because I've read the book and I care about these characters because of that. And now I finally am transposing, you know, my feelings from the book to the characters on screen. Or is it just because now I've spent four hours with these characters and that's enough time for me to feel that connection or some combination of the two? At any rate, they're starting to to feel like real characters that I actually care about. So when Tom says goodbye to to Nick, I got a little choked up. Mm-hmm. And I put that squarely on the performance of, I forget the actor's name, but the, the actor playing Tom. His portrayal of Tom in that moment made me upset. I didn't want them to be separated. So that really worked for me. That, In fact, that worked for me better than when they sent Tom off in the book. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not feeling that emotional connection still here. They're still just people on the screen that because I have not spent enough time with them, they're sort of like Grover Cleveland. They're non-consecutive terms where I'm not getting like a full story of them. <laughs> I see a little bit of them in flashback, then there's a big gap, and then I see a little bit of them in the future, and I'm like, if I could have like a two full term with these characters, maybe I'd, I'd have more of that. But it's just so jumpy around that I'm not engaging with the characters. I will say I engaged with this episode a little bit more and that I should say engaged. I was a little bit more passive in watching it, but I was just watching it to watch it at this point. And I wasn't 
sort of like thinking about it. I was just sort of letting it wash over me, which I guess is a different way of of having the episode work in that I was just like, okay, I'm going to watch this and see what happens. But uh, again, not 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 so much for me, but I, I can appreciate that you feel that way, Jay. I am glad you appreciate it. Another reason why I enjoyed myself with this episode is that there were a lot of funny moments. In that moment that I just referred to when Nick and Tom part ways, right in the middle of it, in that emotional scene, Tom is crying and Nick is crying and I'm starting to cry. And then Tom looks at Larry and he just says, you have an earring. And then gets on the bike and rides away. And that was hilarious. It was such a great delivery. And the episode had a good number of moments like that, that really buoyed my uh, emotional state throughout. So, Yeah, there was a couple of humorous moments for me. Like um, they were provided by Teddy Wiesak when mm-hmm. he, he's all excited because they get these cool new jackets to do the safety patrol. And yeah. he says, hey, it's Baywatch Boulder. <laughs> I'm like, all right, that was clever. It was a dad joke. I could, I could dig it. Yeah, and then he pulls out the Blu-ray of, of of a rock movie, and he's like, man, wouldn't it be awesome if The Rock survived Captain Trips? And I'm thinking, this means, you know, like, it's like Chekhov's gun. It's This time it's Stephen King's rock. We're, we're going to see The Rock in episode six, except he's going to be in Vegas. This could be in a background. <laughs> There's The Rock. Yeah. <laughs> he did survive. Teddy was right. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad that we do have that humorous character in Teddy. I'm looking forward to more of his quips. In the coming episodes. Well, with all with all the flashbacks, who knows? <laughs> uh, another funny moment was when Tom introduces himself to Mother Abigail and he says, I'm Tom from my head. <laughs> and that is exactly right, Tom. That is how you know each other. And it's just awesome. It just his delivery is just spot on. And then the final thing I want to just call out is another Tom moment. And it was great. He says one of his trademark M-O-O-N lines, but he says M-O-O-N. That spells full. And like, psych? Not, he's not doing the moon this time. Not this time. But he was talking about the full moon. When do you come back? The full moon, right? Yep, M-O-O-N. That spells full. I'll, I'll give you that there were a few humorous moments in this episode. I also think that Greg Kinnear is a gem in the show. I've generally been a fan of of Greg Kinnear in just about everything he's done. He has been spectacular in this. I'm also pretty sure that Glenn has not been sober for one minute of this show. I think you might be right. (laughs) He's vaping something in that pen of his. And he's also like chugging booze every, almost every time you see him. I mean, what would you do at the end of the world, right? And you're a professor and you're older. Go for it, man. You be you. Mm -hmm. One of the things that is working for me, and this just might be because of the way the show is, and I'm so familiar with the book, is that when it does something novel or different from the book, it stands out to me. Specifically, the scene with Nick and Tom, and you've mentioned how much that's working for you. I liked how when Julie was introduced jewelry lowry i don't think they mentioned her name yet no but there's a couple of different pieces in there one is that she tells tom nick's name yeah which she does it in the book and tom doesn't learn until they get to boulder 
And it's good that they get that done early because I think that that makes a connection with Nick and Tom. Of course, she does it in a really shitty way to begin with and Mm -hmm. really makes sure that you know that this character is evil. I liked how in that scene, the writers also chose not to have Nick and Julie have sex because I thought that that was always something that rubbed me the wrong way about Nick in the book. Yeah. And it, it felt better the way it happened here. But the thing I liked most about that scene is when Nick really tells Tom, like, we have to go. Like, we don't want to be around this woman. She's not good for us. Of course, he doesn't say it, but, you know, he, he indicates that. And they're walking away, and Julie pulls the gun on him and is going to shoot them. And Tom saves Nick's life. He's the one who hears it, the gun being pulled and cocked and is able to push mm-hmm. Nick out of the way. And I like that aspect, that Tom has really saved Nick's life. And I thought that was well done. Yeah, they managed to pack a lot of Nick and Tom bonding into not very much screen time. Yeah. I wish that there was more of their of the two of them together, but in the book Tom saves Nick a lot. Yep. So it's important that they sh- that we see that if it weren't for Tom Nick never would have made it and vice versa. It's not just Tom being helped by Nick. It's it's a a mutual relationship and uh and they're both vital to each other's survival and very close friends yep and and to that end the other change that i liked was that they don't have to hypnotize tom when they send him west they just need to tell him here's what we want you to do and as they say earlier he's capable of doing these things and nick Mm -hmm. says i think tom will surprise you and so it's nice that they don't have to go to this hypnosis to make him do what they wanted to do i have a feeling that means we're going to miss out on the voice of the voice of uh, Tom, what was it? God God's Tom? Tom or God Tom? Yeah. But but that's okay. It, it, I think it's, it's a nice piece. The other sort of novel scene that I thought really went well was Harold and Nadine getting the explosives and getting caught by Teddy Wiesak. Mm-hmm. Because that added a level of suspense and danger at the end of the episode. I wasn't quite sure was, I mean, I sort of knew it was going to happen, but I wasn't quite sure how it was, but it added a, another level of pathos to what's happening with, with Harold. This is the one person that he had a true relationship with that was sincere, that wasn't based on fraudulence or any sort of attacks by others or perceived attacks or slights. It was, it was a real relationship and he, he loses that in that moment. And so that built up a lot. Yeah. I was amused by Wyzak's like, I don't know. Is he just completely out of touch or just slightly in denial? We know he's attracted to Nadine and it's understandable. Like Nadine is, is supposed to be a beautiful woman. She's portrayed by a beautiful actress. So when he walks up on them and clearly catches them up to no good, it's not immediately obvious what that is yet, but it should be obvious to anybody that something is wrong. Yep. And instead he's just like, Oh, hey, it's it's me, Teddy. Remember me? I met you the other day at your school. How you doing? And he just goes right into flirtation mode. Yep. And he walked past Harold's truck and anybody else probably would have put two and two together at this point. Then Harold walks out from the shadows and it's like, Harold? Hawk? <laughs> Is that you? I thought I saw your truck. Hey, do you know Nadine? Yeah. Like, what you know like it's still like not quite there's no connection yet it's not clicking and then when she shoots him he looks at her like what and then turns to harold (laughs) before he drops dead and says harold run 
like like she's bad. You know, the lady that you don't know, that that one there, Nadine, by the way, she she shot me. She stayed. She right might there. hurt you. Yeah. Like <laughs> just the, this like unending earnestness and and obliviousness. Like it it it's just right for his character, but it's yeah. still weird. Yes, I will say the scene itself works despite all of that, right? Like, I think yeah, yeah, I understand what they're trying to do, but yes, it could have been done better, but I thought that it was a good way to end the episode with a, a hint of, this is different from the book, and this adds a level of danger that we didn't see before. Because now I wonder, like, are they going to have to deal with this? Like, is somebody going to ask, mm-hmm. where's Teddy, who saw him last? Of course, yeah. I thought he was going up to such and such a place, but yeah, they got to get rid of the body, whatever, so... I, I'm I'm not a big fan of the show so far, so g- give me the things that work while they can, Jay. I'm not ta- taking anything away from you. However, I will say, all that I said was just that that amused me. It it didn't. That's true. But one thing that I I didn't like about that scene, and this is more of like looking at the writers' motivations, they wanted to set up a scene where Wyzak surprises Harold and Nadine, right? Yep. But their choice. I think is problematic. Harold was on the same team as as Teddy. Teddy said, "I'm out here checking for problems because we just turned the electricity on." This was a boulder-wide effort. Yep. Everybody was involved. Everybody knew the power was going to get turned on. Everybody was waiting for it to happen. There's no way Harold and Nadine wouldn't have known about it. Harold was on that team. He should have been assigned to be one of the people inspecting the town and looking for problems. And that's the night he chose to go do bomb stuff. I sort of assumed that that's why they chose that night, because they knew everybody else would be at the town square waiting for the lights to come on. But again, they could have set it up very easily by saying, I'll be the one to look over on this side of town, this quadrant of town or whatever. But again, poorly done. Yeah. Just to quickly mention it, just so people don't think we forgot it, but I liked how they condensed a lot of the scenes to get not only Stu and Glenn together with Franny and Harold, but also have uh, a scene where there's an ambush by some bad folks uh, who are taking women prisoner and still showing sort of the Franny-Harold relationship and the beginning of the Stu and Franny relationship. Obviously, that was lots of pages in the book that got condensed down, but it was done fairly nicely and introduced us to Dana as well. So I thought that that, that worked well. I just wanted to mention it just so people don't think we forgot it because it was a a pretty significant part of this episode. Yeah, I thought that worked really well, too. It was a good scene. All right. Well, I don't think there were a lot, but let's still have our Dark Tower themes. I did not find any thinnies. Did you find any? Yeah, I don't think that this is going to quite work, but I'm sure that a lot of you noticed that when Nick and Tom are hugging in that bus station, it looked like, that there was an ad for Hemingford Home, the a retirement home. And so they're like, that's where we need to go to find Mother Abigail. But in the picture, one of the residents of Hemingford Home looks to be Stephen King. S- certainly Stephen King, yes. And it's a Dark Tower thinny because Stephen King was a character in the Dark Tower, and Stephen King is also now a character in the Stand miniseries. So, all right, it, it's like a six degrees of Kevin Bacon thinny, but 
I'll allow it. All right. Uh, any yucking it up moments, Jay? In fact, uh, the yucking it up moment that I wanted to call out is from that scene when the, I'll just call him the alpha male, mm. towards the end of the confrontation, when one of the, the women uh, grabs that pipe to, to try to attack him, he turns on her and shoots her right through the face and her head you know, basically explodes. And then Dana grabs the pipe a moment later and then smashes his head in and and keeps beating him until his head is basically just a, a wet meat bag and then then proceeds to start kicking him. So there was a, a lot of smashing going on there. It's pretty yucky. Yeah, that was my yucking it up moment too, the blood splatter everywhere. If there was more blood in Teddy's dying scene, maybe I would have given it to him, but we're going to go with Dana splattering the guy's head in. Yeah. All right. Well, as always, we'd like to thank our patrons for supporting our show uh, and getting access to exclusive Patreon content, such as bonus podcast episodes. Our bonus podcast episode for January is a fun little short story called Gray Matter. Uh, we just recorded it. It'll be up for our patrons later on this month. And if you would like to listen to that, become a patron by visiting patreon.com slash two guys dark tower. Yeah, we had a lot of fun talking about Gray Matter, and uh, we've got 17 other bonus episodes that you'll also get access to. All right. I think it's time for some fun stuff, Jay. All right. I love fun stuff. And there was a lot of fun stuff in this episode. Yeah. And there's also fun stuff about the show itself, Jay. We're going to go meta here. We actually forgot to rate episode three at the end of last episode. Yeah. And we did not do our ranking of episode three. So, Jay, how many Jamie Sheridans did you give episode three? I will give episode three, the previous episode, three Jamie Sheridans. I liked it more than episode two and not quite as much as I liked episode one. So three Jamie Sheridans it is. Yeah, I gave it two and a half Jamie Sheridans. Same sort of thing. I'm starting to not remember all my actual Jamie Sheridans for every one of the shows. I'm trying to be as consistent as I can. And I think two and a half is where I land. That's fair. All right. So back to the fun stuff for this episode, episode four. What you got, Jay? One is a moment during that planning scene when Stu says, I don't have an accent. And Larry says, yeah, just a little bit. Yeah, he does have it. I just love the fact that, you know, like the, the New Yorkers telling the Texan, you got an accent. <laughs> it's great. Just because we're, we, we liked so much the Tom and Nick stuff. I love that when Tom finds out Nick's name. He's like, Nick Andros. And he's trying it on. He's like, the Nickster. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. that's a cute little name that, uh, that he's given Nick there. Yeah. Just about everything. Almost every minute that Tom's been on screen has been a joy for me. So really enjoying it. A couple of uh, food-related fun stuff items that I had is that Fran is drinking some kind of fruit-colored drink which I have to assume is Zarex, just like in the book. Of course. Which is the, the juice concentrate that only she seems to like in the book. <laughs> Harold has a scene where he breaks out a payday and starts gnawing on it through the, the scene when he's really nervous. And I thought that was pretty great. Yeah. It was a, a nice callback. It wasn't, you have to know what a payday looks like. They didn't show the label or the wrapper. But paydays are pretty, pretty distinct because they're not coated in chocolate. Although 
the ones in the book were. So I don't know. But anyway, Harold ate a payday and Fran drank some Zarex. Yeah, good eye. I, I missed that one. What, one other one i adding on the fly here is that in addition to the Hemingford Home advertisement, there's an advertisement for salt on the other side of that ad. And I just thought it was really weird. It's an advertisement for table salt. It's not something that you normally see advertisements for. And I was trying to figure out why that could have been. And I have no idea why. Hmm. Salt is like the seasoning that sells itself. <laughs> exactly. You don't need to advertise, man. <laughs> All right. So my, my last fun stuff, Jay, is why is this episode called House of the Dead? It beats me. I must have missed something because I don't think that that phrase connects to anything that happened in the show. It was it was a little bit odd to me. Like I sort of like, oh, okay, maybe this is where either the, I don't want to get into spoilers, but I thought maybe it was referring to something that was going to happen or, or not happen. And neither one of those things did. And I'm like, okay, this reference doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, especially since there was no flag in this episode, Jay. Yeah. They they could have made like the fake title to that rock movie, The House of the Dead. That would have been awesome. I think that rock movie was a real movie though. It was. It was it was skyscraper. Or sci or skyscraper, one of the two. <laughs> well, he is a scrapper. Can we add one more fun stuff before we go? Sure. They're leaning into Larry telling people that he's some sort of rock star, which is different from the book and is sort of fun when it leads to scenes like Larry shredding on America the Beautiful mm-hmm. for the whole town on on a on what are those things called scissor lifts? Uh, he's sort of up above everyone and he's just wailing away on his guitar. I thought that that was a a cool little moment. It was a little bit shocking to me because nobody knows he's a rock star in the book once they go once the world ends. But Franny makes mention of it earlier as well. I thought you were going to say it was shocking because he's up on this lift in the rain playing an electric guitar. Uh, I don't have any other fun stuff items, but I I think we should uh, give this episode our ratings. Uh, what did you think? I'm still not on board with this with this show. I'm a little bit higher on this episode than I have been previous ones, and I'm going to give it three Jamie Sheridans. All right. That, that's better than the rating you gave to episode three. Yep. I'm just going to go all out and give this five out of five Jamie Sheridan's. Whoa. Uh, Yeah. This show, this episode was, it wasn't a perfect episode of TV. It it still had a a few problems, but this was by far, by a long ways, the best episode of the show so far. I'm going to give it the, the full score. Five out of five Jamie Sheridan's. Wow. All right. Well, we are now four episodes into what is a nine episode series but if you remember only the first eight episodes contain the story from the book uh, episode nine is going to be a epilogue written by king himself so we're like halfway through the series basically jay yeah and i think uh the the ninth episode is just um a recipe on how to make xyrex oh well i'm gonna make sure i have my notepad out for that so i can take some notes Spoilers. <laughs> it's just going to be the rock <laughs> the rock stirring a pitcher of like light red uh, liquid it'll be fantastic i mean who wouldn't want to watch that I'll, i'd spend 45 minutes watch, watching the rock make zarex <laughs> eating paydays 
<laughs> yeah, you could he could stir the Zarex with the payday. <laughs> Great. All right. Well, that's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media is available in the show notes. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash two guys dark tower. Next episode, join us as we cover episode five of The Stand, <laughs> Suspicious Minds. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. I found a giant bag of hauls on the clearance rack. <laughs> Not balls, hauls. You almost made me do a spit take. No, I didn't mishear you, but I just pictured, like, how are you going to finish that sentence? Where did you find a giant bag of hauls? Was it in the gutter? Was it next to a dumpster? Was it being clutched by a dead person?